Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Chem Tai Mungo. She's an obstetrician gynecologist and global health fellow at the University of California, San Francisco. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Thank you, Max, for having me, and thank you for this uh, wonderful platform. So my name is Dr. Chem Tai Mungo. I am an OBGYN, and I am a fellow at the University of California, San Francisco. And I am working in Western Kenya on prevention of cervical cancer among women um, with HIV and in general amongst all women. And yeah, that's my passion and my work. And I can tell, do you want to hear the personal or the professional? How should we go? Uh, So, I mean, kind of both. Like, I'm curious how you got into working on preventing cervical cancer you know, in Kenya, you're here in the U.S. and you're, you know, kind of going back and forth. Right. So I was born and raised in Kenya mm-hmm. and, um, you know, was born to a middle class family. My parents did not go to college. Um, they sort of had the equivalent of associate degrees, um, came from a large family. Um, my grandfather was polygamous and grew up um, sort of in a culture that's highly patriarchal and highly unequal as far as gender norms. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew early on that I wanted to do something to make a difference in my community and particularly in addressing the disproportional burden that I witnessed um, women experiencing both socioeconomically, from health because of weak health systems and just from um, patriarchy and just power imbalances um, in that community. So. I had an opportunity to come to the U.S. for college. Um, I did well in school in Kenya and um, came out and uh, graduated from the University of California in Berkeley and was a pre-med and then went, uh, got into medical school at um, University of California, San Francisco, which is where I, I am for my fellowship. And as I went, went through med school, um, at the back of my head was sort of this motivation, this passion that I had for what sort of drove me to become a doctor and to seeing medicine as a vehicle, a contribution. Um, And I, through my work at being a medical student at UCSF, I had the opportunity to work with some faculty who um, is a longstanding collaboration working in Kenya that from my university initially around HIV prevention and sort of um, responding to the HIV epidemic. And as a medical student, I had the opportunity to get a year long fellowship. I was a Doris Duke fellow and spent a year back in Kenya um, in Kisumu and uh, working with a group that was looking at preventing cervical cancer among women with HIV. And that work really sparked my interest. And so, you know, I came back, I finished medical school and I became an obstetrician gynecologist because it aligned with my interest in caring for women, being an advocate, uh, I love surgery, but also love public health and big picture kind of aspects of medicine. And following my residency training, then is finally the opportunity for me to kind of get my feet wet um, as a fellow and a practitioner um, working on cervical cancer prevention in Kenya. Mm-hmm. So that is the long road <laughs> here. Nice. Um, so 
you know, just for my audience um, and, and also even for my own knowledge, though I could look this up on uh, up to date, the cervical cancer sort of like present in a more aggressive way in women with HIV? Yeah, that is, um, that is true. So women with HIV, uh, because of immune suppression, um, even when they are taking antiretroviral therapy and their immune system is reconstituted, they still have very aggressive uh, presentation of cervical cancer. Um, they tend to get it at a much earlier age compared to the average woman. Um, and when they get it, the clinical course is, is aggressive and you know the time to death is actually quite early. Um, and even stepping back from you know HIV positive women, I'm really drawn to just the field of cervical cancer because it's uh, reflects this great disparity we have in the world um, of access to um, health and prevention based on where you live. So, you know, most women in America know the pap smear, which is something that you go to your um, doctor to get done on a frequent basis. And since the introduction of the pap smear in the 40s, um, which is a test that is used to uh, detect cervical cancer early, um, the rates of cervical cancer in Western countries have really plummeted. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So that really today, you know, there's about 300,000 women who die, who get cervical cancer every year, and nine out of 10 of those women live in low resource settings because they have no access to prevention. So you basically have this cancer that's preventable because we have the tools and the tool, you know, if you live in a Western country, you have access to this tool, which is a pap smear. And you can, you know, basically bet that you, you will never get this cancer. So, you know, this disease was a huge disease of disparity and sort of spoke to me as, you know, somebody who cared a lot about health disparities and about kind of, addressing this vast, you know, differences in access uh, to who, you know, lives and who dies literally based on mm -hmm. where, they where, where they were born or where they're living. Totally. Uh, and so in addition to pap smears that are basically, um, that basically serve as a, like, surveillance um, mechanism, we also now have vaccines, right, that are pretty effective in helping prevent um, cervical cancer. Yes, so we now have the HPV vaccine. So thanks to science, we know um, the causative agent of cervical cancer. And we, that is why this is a cancer that's very amenable to prevention. Um, and like other cancers, like you know, ovarian cancer, for example, we can't you know, screen for it. We don't mm -hmm. exactly know what causes it. Right. With cervical cancer, we know that HPV infection causes cervical cancer and um, now have the HPV vaccine that's available that um, with vaccination at an early age, you know, usually between around nine, starting around nine, nine years of age, um, you significantly reduce or, or even eliminate the um, potential for that woman to get infected with HPV and then reduce or eliminate their risk for cervical cancer. Um, unfortunately, because of access and health financing and you know a lot of um, low and middle income countries including Kenya have very a lot of competing priorities 
HPV vaccine is just now getting introduced and um, it will take years to really see its benefits because those, those who, are get, who are getting access to it are 10-year-old girls in Canada uh -huh. currently. They just begun. Um, and it's pretty similar to other um, sub-Saharan African countries where you know, they're just starting um, the introduction of HPV vaccine. So you have you know, millions of women who, because they never got vaccinated, they were exposed to HPV and at risk, are at risk for cervical cancer. Um, so the work that I am doing and the, uh, the team that I work with is, you know, how can we get access, increase access to prevention for these mm -hmm. women? Um, and particularly within um, resource limited settings. So, you know, how can we teach nurses to do screening for cervical cancer? Because we know that most women in low and middle income countries don't see an obstetrician gynecologist because they're very few. So they see nurses in healthcare centers. So some of the work we're doing is training nurses um, to screen for um, pre-cancer. Um, we're training nurses to treat pre-cancer um, and we're doing studies to make sure that the treatment is safe and it's efficacious. Um, and then we are working to look for other methods aside from the pap smear that are we can use to offer um, screening um, that ideally can give you results on the same day because we know that you know, with the pap smear you need a pathologist you need um, you know a woman needs to come in several times so we're working on several fronts to really make sure that the millions of women who did not get the HPV vaccine, who can benefit from screening, can get it. Got it. Uh, and so what are some of those tools? Off the top of my head, I can only think about like colposcopy, um, but this is like coming from a third year slash fourth year med student's perspective. Um, so when you tell me a little bit more about, you know, the, the different things that you and your team are teaching to nurses on the ground over in Kenya. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely, the field has been a lot of research. Um, in this field for years, um, even before I was born. Um, and they, so some of the ways, some of the methods that we are using to screen that are resource appropriate, um, there's something called visual, inspe visual inspection with acetic acid, mm -hmm. which is the first part of a, of a um, colposcopy, if you remember, basically you place acetic acid, which is dilute vinegar on the cervix, and you visualize for abnormal changes. and Precancerous cells, you know, will take up the acetic acid and turn white. Mm -hmm. So there's been studies that have shown that you can actually, without having the colposcope, which is expensive, um, which basically gives you mag magnification, you can teach a nurse just that first step of the visual inspection with acetic acid, um, and with decent sensitivity and specificity to detect precancerous changes. Um, we're innovating at one of the, you know, two very exciting innovations in the field. One is uh, point of care HPV tests. Mm -hmm. So we know that HPV is an agent that causes cervical cancer. And <clears throat> we, st studies have shown that um, you can actually teach women to collect their own HPV sample. So, you know, when you work in rural settings, um, many clinics don't have, you know, private rooms to do a pelvic exam or you're working with women who, for cultural reasons, don't want to do a pelvic exam. Um, 
no women, no woman loves a speculum exam. <laughs> so, you know, it's worse if potentially the, the nurse in your facility is a man and you're, you know, 60 year old or 70 year old granny. Um, so one of the sort of best tools that we have um, that we're trying to increase access to is HPV self-sampling, yeah. where the women can, like in the privacy, you know, go to the bathroom in the clinic, or even if you're doing it at home, uh, they can just go to their privacy in their home and collect a sample and validate it that, you know, very similar to physician-collected samples, and we're coupling HPV self-collection treatment. Um, so ideally, a woman can get treated the same day if she has pre-cancer. Um, so that's a really exciting tool that um, is a result of research in a, identifying the HPV test and making it into a point-of-care test. Um, one final tool that um, is still um, in the kind of early phases that has a lot of potential is using um, automa automated uh, um, algorithms from a picture of the cervix to train a computer um, and ultimately an app on a phone to identify precancer um, because you know it basically these like I said once you apply acidic acid on the cervix there's some characteristic changes that happen and there's a point of um, there's a proof of concept study that has actually shown that this is possible mm -hmm. that you can train an algorithm over multi, you know, show it multiple pictures of normal and abnormal services to identify precancer very accurately. In fact, um, in this study that was done by the National Cancer Institute, the algorithm was more um, um, sensitive and specific, was more accurate than mm -hmm. human colposcopists. So, so our team is working with um, researchers at the NIH and the are sort of in the early phases of trying to validate whether we can replicate those findings with the idea that um, ultimately you can you know, develop an algorithm, you push on a phone that a nurse in a rural setting can, without, without access to um, pathology, be able to get a very accurate result and offer, uh, offer treatment to a woman on the same day. Mm -hmm. and hence prevent um, this woman from dying from this preventable cancer. Very nice. And so treatment would be like a leap. Well, I'm using big words. Uh, you tell me as if you were telling a six-year-old what different forms of treatment are being taught to nurses in those rural settings. Yeah, so, so certainly if you're in the United States, the typical treatment or in a high-income country, or in an urban area in Nairobi or many places where you have access to an obstetrician and the facilities, then LEAP, uh, which is loop electrosurgical excision procedure, which is basically an outpatient procedure that removes the abnormal parts of the cervix um, use, using sort of a heated um, loop um, that's you know it's part of a LEAP machine. Um, the problem with LEAP is that um, it takes more training. It's, it is a surgical procedure, even though it's an outpatient procedure. Um, so it's harder to, you, know, you need electricity. If you're doing LEAP, you need the machine, it's expensive. Um, so ongoing research, again, with the idea of how can we solve these problems um, related to resource um, of, you know, 
low resource contexts. Um, mm -hmm. um, and so there's actually very good studies that have shown currently um, alternat alternatives to LEAP include cryotherapy, which you may or may not have heard of as a medical student, but it's basically using frozen gas um, to uh, ablate, uh, to basically kill the abnormal cells on the cervix. So it's not an excision procedure. You're not taking out any part of the cervix. So cryotherapy, um, very easy to use, you know, validated that nurses can do it safely, uh, minimal side effects, women go home on the same day. And then um, we're currently um, testing or validating another treatment method um, that's basically, it's called thermal, thermal ablation, which mm -hmm. also instead of using um, frozen gas, it's using a heated probe to ablate the abnormal cells. Um, again, it's a procedure we just had a paper um, uh, submitted to a journal uh, that shows very minimal, very few, if any, side effects, um, very acceptable to women. And the advantage of thermal ablation is that it's a battery powered, very portable, very light device. So if you're doing community campaigns, you know, oftentimes in part of um, preventing cervical cancer, you have to go to where the women are and clinics are far. So you can do community campaigns where you just go to different communities, offer screening and treatment on the same day. And the thermal ablation device is very portable, you know, like can fit in your purse or a, it's a briefcase. Um, so that's a very exciting um, treatment option that, um, can be safely rolled out um, by you know non physicians and can you know basically give access to treatment for precancer for women. That is fascinating. You know what? Before med school, I worked in this lab, and my main project in the lab was using a catheter that would be a combination of both cryotherapy and serotactic laser ablation. I literally made these catheters with my bare hands. And it was supposed to be for actually for mitral valve prolapse. But it's really cool to see these different applications of technologies, especially for something that I've worked on before and I hadn't yeah. really, uh, until just now that we could use both um, cryotherapy and um, heat for cervical yeah. cancer. And, and I heat, now yeah. I wonder if you could do both. Yeah, right, right. That's what you were doing. So, so I am fascinated by these uh, technologies. And to be clear, the, yeah, the technology is treating pre-cancer in our case. So with uh, cervical cancer, the, yeah, the, once you get HPV, there's a long window of a period where there's precancerous changes that over time become cancer. So that cancer, cervical cancer is preventable because you can catch the pre-cancer and treat it with, um, you know, frozen nitrogen or heat. And yes, it's it's very exciting that a lot of um, you know, technologies are very transferable and you know some groups are using you know kind of small um, nitrous pens or different ways to to deliver the the nitrogen gas because one of the challenges with cryotherapy is the gas tanks are really heavy and big. Um, and so, <laughs> so you know, a if you're in a rural setting, it's hard to procure them because they need to come from the city. It needs you know some transportation, um, and then they're not very portable from clinic to clinic. So the thermal ablation, which uses heat, which is packaged in a small uh, battery-powered device, is um, very favorable um, for that setting where you can you know 
have a team going from village to village um, without needing, you know, manpower to carry a 90 kilo tank. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. So now that makes me think of the mm -hmm. U.S. context, right? Obviously, in the U.S., this is a, a you know Western country. All the technologies you can think of are probably available here at some big academic medical center. Uh, but even within this country, right, something like half or half of U.S. counties do not have a single OBGYN. Um, and in some settings, especially in rural settings, um, uh, people have to travel really far. Um, to see an OBGYN. And so I was thinking of Alabama that has these incredibly high rates of cervical cancer. And I wonder whether the similar approach of, you know, training um, nurses in rural Kenya um, to, to screen appropriately and treat pre-cancer um, pre uh, or pre-cervical mm -hmm. cancer um, could be applied in, in these settings here in the US while we sort of like in parallel try to address the um, very obvious shortage of obstetrician gynecologists. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this speaks to sort of the duality of global health. So when people think about global health, they think about kind of just north to south where people from the uh -huh. north are going to solve problems in the south, which is false. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, innovations that are done and you know, because of the, the necessity of low resource constraints um, in the global south that could be transferable, and this is one of them. Where you know, you know, the issue of potentially having AI, you know, that woman doesn't need to travel really far to you know get access to that gynecologist. You know, a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, or even a nurse in Alabama, can be trained using you know a solid AI um, algorithm to identify pre-cancer. Um, the the non-excision treatment methods, so cryotherapy or thermal ablation, um, they're much easier to do. You don't, you know, there's no bleeding, so you know you can train you know anybody to do it. Um, and also for women, especially women who are younger, you know, leap or you know when you excise the cervix, you increase the risk of having preterm birth. Um, so there's many. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this is an uh, example of global health work that can be transferred to the, you know, global north um, and to, you know, address solutions in um, rural communities. I totally uh, agree. And, you know, some of, um, I do clinical work at Highland Hospital, which is a county hospital in Oakland uh, where health disparities are quite significant. Um, and, you know, my hope is to be able to transfer some of this work to, to Highland and to do validation studies here as well. Um, and just, is a reminder for all of us to think globally and to realize that contributions in science can happen all over the world. Right, bi-directionally. Bi-directionally, multi-directionally, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's really neat. Um, it's that parallel with like access to addiction treatment in rural areas here in the U.S., where like nurse practitioners and uh, and uh, PAs are picking up the mantle and providing access to buprenorphine. So. Um, it would be really, you know, like really neat. And so you mentioned something that I hadn't thought of before um, in how those non, you know, like I guess non-invasive therapies for pre-cancer could actually help supplant um, perhaps um, issues related to preterm birth. Mm -hmm. um, so like in the U.S., for example, um, uh, Black mothers are at 
significantly increased risk of um, experiencing um, preterm mm -hmm. birth. At the same time, right, Black women also have like higher rates of cervical mm -hmm. cancer that can be mm -hmm. caught, but oftentimes caught you know, later because of all the existing health disparities that we've already discussed and also previously discussed on this podcast. Uh, and so what I see here in this technology that you are working on, is sort of like, like a two punch mm -hmm, tool mm -hmm. that can help address like two, two um, sets of mm -hmm. like types of disparities, right? So I wonder, um, like if you were to control for the number or, or for the rates at which I guess younger black women um, get uh, pre-cervical cancer and then need leaps and then end up having um, sure. uh, or potentially going into preterm mm -hmm. labor or, um, like I'm just thinking like what could be the effect of that right on the rates of prematurity in this country and that disparity between black and white uh, mothers yeah you bring up really good points and certainly this is something that <clears throat> I know George Sawaya who's an obstetrician um, and researcher at UCSF um, has done a lot of work on dysplasia, which is um, you know, cervical precancer, um, and really uh, thinking about what is the contribution of excision to prematurity. Um, and when mm -hmm. you have you know, the health disparities or access issues that lead um, women of color in these countries to you know, get cervical cancer or precancer early, and they're exposed to you know, LEAP, which is a more um, invasive treatment. And then, you know, again, mm -hmm. because of this double burden, um, when they become pregnant, you know, issues around access, implicit bias, you know, transportation, getting to you know, the facilities, they have increased risk of preterm birth, which is very expensive, has morbidity for the mother and baby. So this is something that could certainly address both um, both sort of you know epidemics that are affecting black women in the US and actually you just gave me a good idea for my next grant application. <laughs> Look forward to seeing my name in acknowledgement. Fighting <laughs> this episode. I know you, you and Sister Scrooge will be acknowledged appropriately. <laughs> Absolutely. And it just challenges us to to think bi-directionally and to you know, yeah, to kind of draw, and this is, I, I love this about working in global health and, you know, being a practitioner who spent a lot of time in Sub-Saharan Africa and a lot of time in the Bay Area, like how can, you know, my, my two worlds connect? And this is, this is an excellent way. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad this is not only a good conversation for their listeners, but also productive for you academically. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I love it. I love it. Um, I had a thought also related to um, HPV, but not necessarily cervical cancer. I think I mm -hmm. kind of hinted at that earlier. Um, so HPV is now the leading cause of oropharyngeal cancer. Uh, it has surpassed um, tobacco um, in, you know, in those statistics. And so basically, you know, I guess men can very much um, get HPV, but we don't have any way of, I guess, screening men um, for HPV the way we do women, uh, at least certainly as of now, certainly not for, I guess, oropharynx, um, uh, like cellular changes. Uh, and so it seems like basically vaccines are the best tool um, for prevention of oropharyngeal cancer um, uh, especially in men, right? Because obviously women get vaccinated for both reasons, or, uh, cervical cancer 
and oropharyngeal cancer, but then for boys, it's primarily uh, for oropharyngeal cancer. Although obviously, I guess you could get penile cancer from HPV. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, as an OBGYN, right, the same way that perhaps if you see a patient who has, um, uh, I don't know, gonorrhea or chlamydia, you may treat that patient, right? Your typical, like, I don't know, young female patient, and you mm -hmm. may offer um, like expedited therapy for the partner as well, where it sort of mm -hmm. like has a benefit for both your patient and your partner mm -hmm. because they're at lesser risk of getting reinfected, right? Mm -hmm. um, I wonder, so like vaccination campaigns for HPV um, for boys or even young adult men, like if you saw a, a young female patient who maybe didn't get vaccinated for HPV at a younger age because of um, what policies were at the time, um, would you also like, what do you think of that sort of like of using that social network to also expand access to HPV vaccines uh, among boys and young men? Yeah, um, this is a good reminder that the HPV vaccine is recommended for both boys and girls. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, while in the US, the vaccination uptake rates are quite low, which is another issue, and it's unfortunate. Other parts of the world, Australia, for example, um, has very good uptake for both men and women or girls mm -hmm. and boys <clears throat> for that reason that you know young men also get HPV and they not only can pass it on to women who can get cervical cancer but they themselves can have sequelae from HPV infection um, so you know the hopefully for the pediatricians who are out there I'm hoping that they're, they're pushing you know HPV vaccination as part of for all the you know young boys that they're seeing um, you bring up a good point about um, kind of connecting the true diseases and in counseling um, for young women, you know, and the CDC just increased the age group where um, HPV vaccine can be um, given with joint decision making mm -hmm. up to 45 years, actually. Right, so right. Like yeah, yeah. So, you know, for the same reason, you know, men are, are at risk and, you know, it's usually based on kind of your prior exposure, whether you should get it um, later. But this is a good point for all of us practitioners to remember that there is a benefit for both, both genders um, and to, you know, continue to advocate uh, as you see, you know, as, an, as a gynecologist, as I see that woman, then I remind her, you know, tell your partner that he too is eligible and he should get it. Mm -hmm. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about, um, especially within, because we're in this COVID moment, right, where um, we're reading a lot of stories of um, either like men who are really sick with COVID and are being taken care of by their, um, by their partners, women or men, uh, and thinking about how basically, you know, infectious diseases do spread through social networks. And so when we mm -hmm. do uh, when we do contact tracing, you know, from a, in a public health from a public health lens, um, I've been thinking we could also use the same sort of like social network or contact to um, to promote, um, I guess, either healthy behavior or preventative measures. Um, yeah. Yeah. Max, I think you have some very good ideas that can be turned into <laughs> some grants. All <laughs> 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 right, yeah, you're just oozing ideas, man. You're not even trying. Absolutely. And that's kind of, uh, you know, when as a scientist thinking 
kind of, you know, how to kind of adapt or use everyday sort of, you know, elements like, you know, social networks um, to promote health behavior change. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know if anybody is working on this particular issue. I will look it up, but this is something that sometimes we forget what's in front of us as far as like ways to really mm-hmm. promote behavior change and looking, um, getting the message out. You know, people listen to each other. They often don't listen to their doctors. <laughs> so, you know, taking advantage, advantage of that is, is something, you know, it's, it's, it's a good reminder for scientists out there. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. I learned a great deal during this conversation. Uh, I am fascinated by how, um, you and your colleagues are able to um, translate technology, um, especially to improve the lives of people in lower resource setting. That is one of my passions. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities, and yeah, keep keep your eyes out. Um, and you know, I have not been to Cameroon yet, which is where you're from, but I'm hoping one day to to get there. And I'm hoping that women in Cameroon too can get access to these technologies, and you know, get. Um, it's very frustrating when you have a life that is lost from a preventable disease. Tell me about it, COVID. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, so all of us have a lot of work to do and I'm very passionate about this and it's um, something that I, um, it's worth my time and effort to serve my life's work. Thank you, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Max, and thank you for doing this for this platform. Absolutely. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.